Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host today. Today is a very different day, actually. We are not talking to a researcher visiting the Ruther Library. We're actually talking to one of our very own staff. Yet, you know, we don't just shuffle papers from one box to the other. We don't scan all day. We don't talk about metadata all day. Although there are some people here on staff who would love to talk about it all day. You know, their mantra is no metadata, no future. But, you know, actually, we do get to read our collections every once in a while. So anyway, so today we, we thought we'd talk to Megan Courtney. She um, is our outreach archivist. And before that role, she was the AFSME archivist. And she wrote a blog on our website talking about when Nelson Mandela visited Detroit after his release from prison in 1990. So Troy and I asked her to expand that blog a bit and have a conversation about the tour he gave in the United States. I'm sure Troy had a blast figuring out what sound bites to use to embarrass us. Isn't that true, Troy? So much fun. <laughs> I think I actually started singing that special song from the mid-80s called Free Nelson Mandela, so stay tuned. Anyway, we're going to have more of these type of interviews uh, in the coming months um, uh, with our staff who have some special interests in various stories that we thought we'd share with you guys. So hold on to your ears in the future. Uh, we'll be talking to archivists. <laughs> Okay, let's get started with a, let's, let's do a background on what was the anti-apartheid movement and how did it really get its legs in the United States? Wow, okay. Like you, you make it sound like that's an easy question, but it's actually sort of complicated. So apartheid in South Africa, conceptually, is they're, they're classing people by race. So people have to have things like IDs that show if they are um, fully white or... Um, a mixture of white and black, other ethnicities. So things like if you are Asian, like that would fall into not white also in South Africa. Um, so you have different abilities and different rights in society based on those classifications. So they kind of instated this um, mid-century, mid-20th century. And at first, it was something that was kind of a localized protest. People in South Africa were protesting against this, but it wasn't a, a big thing in the U.S. until much later. It took a lot of agitation. Nelson Mandela um, was part of the ANC, so it's the African National Congress. Um, this is a group that we know today as a political party, um, but at the time, of course, black South Africans couldn't vote. They weren't allowed to. That's one of the rights they didn't have as part of the apartheid system. Some of those other rights included things like places they could travel at different times of the day, etc. So it was really restrictive qualifications. And so Nelson Mandela got involved in the ANC as a as a means of opposing this apartheid system. He grew up as, as a young man before apartheid was official, like the law of the land there in South Africa. Um, and so he became a pretty educated guy. He's getting his education and apartheid comes in. And so he's seeing a lot, kind of a rise in discrimination against people like him, against black men who and, and women. So he gets involved in the ANC as a means of doing something about it. How did the anti-apartheid movement start in the United States? Depending on who you ask, you could say a couple of different things. It definitely, by the 60s and 70s, you're seeing people who are civil rights activists in the United States who are making connections to people in South Africa. You know, black uh, Americans are in the 60s fighting for their right to be able to vote all across the country. And that's something that, again, in South Africa, black South Africans are not able to do. Um, so people are starting to make connections, but it really blows up 
in about 1976. So in 1976, there's an uprising in Soweto, which is um, a, an enormous housing area where black South Africans are allowed to live. They're not allowed to live in a lot of places in town, um, much like in the United States, where you see things like redlining in American cities, where you know people of different races are only allowed to buy property in certain parts of town. Very similar in Soweto, except that it's uh, a huge, huge, huge population. It's a large land area. But this uprising happens, and a lot of people are hurt and killed. And so the world kind of sees for the first time the brutality the South African government is imposing on these black South Africans. But I should say that that's not the very first time that organizations are involved. So you look at um, one of the things you can find in our collections here is in 1974, the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, and we have their records here at the Ruther, they actually are one of the most vocal um, labor groups at the very start that's saying, you know, we have to be paying attention to what's happening in South Africa. This is all part of our struggle. You know, our brothers and sisters are hurting in South Africa, and we need to do something about that. So the CBTU is in its very early stages in 74, and it's one of the first causes that they really want to make sure that they are supporting as anti-apartheid movement. So what kind of actions did the CPTU, including the UAW, AFSME, they, they passed resolutions, but what actions did they do to yeah. raise awareness and consciousness about the apartheid system in South Africa? So um, that's really, it's an ongoing thing that happens throughout the 70s and 80s that all of these labor groups are working really hard to to make sure that they are expressing their distaste for this whole thing. So in the early days, yeah, it starts with things like resolutions so that they can say, um, we as an organization oppose this thing. But we all know that doesn't do that much, right? To say you're against this, it doesn't have a lot of legs. So in the early days, especially with AFSME, because AFSME is the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees. So these are people who are working for cities and states, and they have pension funds. So these big pension funds, this is something that grew further on into the 80s. The membership would agitate to get their pension funds divested from South African business. So they are pulling out this investment money. Over time, this really does end up hurting the South African economy. So that's an, a very effective way of doing it. But more grassroots. You see a lot of labor leaders that are working in organizations that aren't officially like labeled as labor organizations, but they're full of people of the labor movement. So Bill Lucy, for example, who's a he was the secretary treasurer of AFSCME for a long time. And he was actually one of the co-founders of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, which is one of the reasons that this thread kind of carries through. Bill Lucy was involved in a lot of the organizations that I'm going to mention. He created, along with some other leaders, the Free South Africa movement that kind of stemmed out of Trans-Africa. So if you're looking at the records related to the anti-apartheid movement, you're going to see a lot of things from Trans-Africa. Again, it's not officially a labor organization, but a lot of people in the labor movement are heavily involved in there and are really driving that conversation. So the Free South Africa movement um, helps to coordinate a lot of these efforts, and they would do things like uh, coordinate like daily protests at the Capitol. Sometimes members at various locals would do like a hunger strike. Um, so they would do those things in part to get on the news, to try to change public opinion about what was happening in South Africa, to try to make people stop saying, OK, well, that's somewhere else, um, to make people realize that this is something that does impact people here in the U.S. You also have people on the West Coast who, and this is kind of an earlier chunk too, 
who are like longshoremen. So they're people who unload ships. So early on, these guys are a pretty radical union. And in the 70s, even they're saying like, we're just not going to unload this ship. So I, I know that it took you guys a lot of money and time to sail this ship over here, but send it back. We're not going to unload it. And they were a strong enough union that they couldn't really get scabs in there to do it. So uh, that's a huge expense to send an enormous container ship across the ocean full of pretty expensive goods um, and then to have to send it back. So over time, through the 70s and 80s, they're um, creating a huge economic impact on South Africa. I think uh, some of the figures that they that they float around is that by 1990, when Mandela's released from prison, it's up to $10 billion that South Africa has lost. So economic sanctions are a big deal. Yeah, I remember the shanties on campuses that yeah. we put up. And yes, I'd be part of that as well, of course. That's a good protester i was always there but it, uh, yeah, raised, being raised in dc the protest in front of the embassy was a constant mm-hmm. um i remember going there many times and not getting arrested and stuff like that yeah you know you don't do that as a teenager really did you i didn't get arrested as a teenager no <laughs> i've gotten some citations oh really what? for civil disobedience, oh, civil but disobedience like... <laughs> nothing else no. Okay. I, you gotta you gotta use your your you know your um, legal capital <laughs> <laughs> wisely. Uh, we might edit that. We might not. I don't know. All right. Uh, you mentioned that he's released from prison. That's a great way to start into the because your blog was basically about his visit to the United States. Yes. So why don't we start right at the beginning with his trip? He gets released from prison and it seems like immediately he's fundraising for the ANC and doing a massive tour. He just came off of Europe and now he's landing in New York City. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> well, okay. So I'm going to have to rewind a little bit before that because realistically, like he's released from prison in February of 1990. And that had been kind of in the works for a couple of years. They got a new president in South Africa who was, I guess, a little bit more scared of the economic sanctions than the last guy, a little bit less entrenched in racial hatred, maybe, Um, maybe less public about it. And so those last couple of years, they moved him to another, a different prison. He wasn't at Robben Island the whole 27 years. Um, The last year he had been kind of in ill health. So they moved him to a slightly more comfortable prison for like 88 to 90 And during that period of time, he's got a lot more contact with the outside world. So he is able to do some more work corresponding with labor leaders. So people like Bill Lucy, he's been writing back and forth with them about his plans and about doing this kind of work because he makes it to the U.S. by the end of June. So like February to June, especially given that he's in Europe for part of that time doing a similar tour, a lot of that planning, the groundwork was laid well before he actually walked out the door um, in February. So He's been building those relationships, kind of personal relationships with labor leaders in the U.S. during that time also. There's some correspondence in our Belusi stuff that kind of illustrates that they were planning something like this at the very end of the 80s. They weren't like make, setting dates, but they were making plans to do this kind of work. So he's come off this European tour, same concept. He's fundraising for the ANC. They're seeing some things kind of loosen up. They're seeing an opportunity that that maybe by the 94 election, it will be a free election where all races are able to vote. So he's coming to the U.S. at the very end of June. He gets to Washington, or sorry, to New York. Um, his first stop is New York. Some of the stops that he's making on this tour are a little bit more kind of international relations type things. He's doing things like participating in a ticker tape parade in New York. He's doing things like going to Boston to the JFK library. He meets with President Bush actually in Washington, which is an interesting thing because 
Bush and then his predecessor, Reagan, were not really friends to the anti-apartheid movement. Reagan vetoed some bills related to uh, sanctions against and then Congress, even though they were Republican, they were seeing so much pressure from their constituents, they had to to stop that veto. So realistically, him sitting down with Bush is kind of an interesting thing to do. And that's what I mean by kind of an inter- international relations bent. But a big chunk of his tour is visiting labor people that have been supporting him throughout in the movement throughout this whole time. Well, in D.C., he stops by and sees the AFL-CIO. Yep. That's part of what he did in, in D.C. too. Went to the AFL-CIO headquarters. And then he also... Um, He made a couple of different stops related to labor uh, across the country. So he went to Miami, and really most of what he did in Miami was to go to the AFSCME convention. Um, That's something that uh, he had talked to Bill Lucy about over time, like coming to see the members, because the members were really – a lot of the AFSCME membership felt pretty engaged in the anti-apartheid movement, even though by and large AFSCME is not the most – it doesn't have the most radical membership. I mean, these are people who work, you know, in city clerk's offices and things like that. People who are doing road repair. They're not like the longshoremen um, in terms of like their membership's political beliefs, but they really got behind the anti-apartheid movement. So it was important to Lucy that they be able to like see Mandela in person, speak to them. So he went and he addressed the convention there. And right after that, he really kind of got on a plane and went to... Detroit. and um, Which was the best stop ever, right? Because it was Detroit. I mean, he, he did say that it was the warmest reception that he got during his um, 12-day eight-city U.S. tour. So that is one of the things he felt like he had really been welcomed. So he did a couple things. He visited the members of Local 600 of the UAW. That was actually the place that he, he said he felt the, the strongest reception because he... Then was he actually he told them that uh, he was one of them. Yeah. And that's I think that's one of those things that is really important for people to remember about like the reasons that Mandela and the ANC would would feel this kinship with the American labor movement. The ANC early on was really interested in doing this nonviolent approach. Um, And so, yeah, they're doing public protests. They're doing things like hunger strikes, et cetera. But Nelson Mandela was one of the the important people in the ANC that said, we're going to have to disrupt the means of production in order to make progress. Like we can't just sit around and not eat. People don't care. You know, when when the South African government is stopping you from being able to lead a healthy and successful life, they don't care if you're hungry right now. They made you hungry before already. So what he's saying is that yeah, we might have to do things like damage the train tracks so the trains can't go and the goods can't get sold because when you put this economic pressure on people, then they have this motivation to make different choices. Well, Mandela became the head of the military wing of the ANC. He did. Um, and he made that argument to the leadership quite a bit. And he his understanding of that is based on kind of this Marxist concept. But he also said to um, to the leadership, I do think, you know, there will have to be some violence involved in this. He did not mean to hurt people. What he meant was violence against, you know, these means of production, the tools for making goods, moving them around, selling them, exporting them, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but then he gets thrown into jail. Mm-hmm. Yep, right when he starts getting this military wing going, Yeah, he gets hauled into jail. He does. In the 50s and 60s, they're getting some support and some training from the Soviet Union. But by the time we're looking at free elections in the 90s, they've distanced themselves. Like on Mandela's world tour, he goes to Europe, he goes to the U.S., but 
you know, despite some some older friendships, he doesn't go to the Soviet Union during his visit to raise money. And, you know, he's kind of distancing himself from those more explicitly radical roots in order to make things stick in the long term. But early on, yeah, it's it's a huge influence on him. And he strongly believes in these ideas that that you're going to have to do not just asking nicely. There's a lot more to it. And, and that is part of the struggle. And I think it's really important to know that Nelson Mandela did not see himself as a martyr. He wasn't working as a martyr. He wasn't just, you know, kind of sitting around waiting to get hit so that he could have the news look at it. He was an active participant in the struggle, and he saw that as a really important way to approach change. So as, as so you can say, as he got older, moved from the Marxist idea to the cooperation idea mm-hmm. that in order to fund a revolution, you still need the people that actually have the funds. Mm-hmm. And one way is to cooperate. And yeah. he, he met with the person who actually probably uh, did not appreciate him as much as the Secretary of State Baker. Mm-hmm. Privately, mm-hmm. the guy still had him on the watch list. Yeah, and here he is meeting with him privately, yep. and across the country, probably having other kind of meetings. But the DC meeting was more of business. Mm-hmm. The but rest he... of the country tour was was more of here is a cultural icon, mm-hmm. where you know people in, the, in Tiger Stadium stayed till after ten o'clock. Oh yeah, so in Tiger Stadium, I mean, it was obviously Tiger Stadium seats a lot of people, and so it's a fundraising tour, right? So some of the people that are up close to the stage have paid a, a decent amount of money for these tickets. Um, but they also, you know, invited some just regular people and allowed them to go. Some of the tickets were given away, and then a lot of them were just $5 to get in. So they really wanted people who had been putting their time and effort behind Mandela's cause to be able to see him in person. And we have some great pictures of him, you know, like wearing a UAW jacket, and he's got his hands up in the air. Yeah, so he, he had a really, again, a very warm reception, a very exciting time. And then also, you know, your kind of Detroit stars are there. So Stevie Wonder is there to help welcome and perform. Aretha Franklin's there. And it's it's really a celebration. Um, and and uh, they're excited about him having been released from prison, but they're also really looking forward to these changes that everybody feels strongly are going to come in South Africa. And that's part of the reason, too, that he's looking at like building some kind of allies that in the 50s and 60s he may not have had any interest in in reaching out to. But as he's looking into the 1994 election and what comes after, he's knowing that he's going to have to build a coalition. So he's working on doing that here in the U.S. And then you talk about some other kind of economic forces that he's having to to raise money, right? So when he's in L.A. um, later on in the week, that's definitely the location where, like, they're selling tickets to the big money people. They have a fancy reception. Um, they're trying to balance out like stadium places where people can see Mandela who may not be rich people, but also like reception dinners where you're spending a bunch of money for the dinner. You're getting to shake hands, but you're contributing a chunk of change to the movement. So that L.A. one, you got a lot of wealthy L.A. people. Um, but he also, again, kind of makes a, a side trip further north and he goes to Oakland because, again, that's a place where he wants to be able to meet the longshoremen that were some of the early supporters. And, again, Oakland, uh, especially then, was more of a working-class city. Got a lot of people there who are interested in meeting him. Um, when you look at the cities on the list, you'll see that a lot of the cities have large black populations in the U.S. So, like, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Detroit, Oakland, L.A., to a certain extent. So it was important to him and the people organizing the trip, that he make this connection to black civil rights movement, to black Americans who it really resonates to them that worldwide and uh, in your own country, justice is not complete. 
So he really wanted to kind of mobilize those people to continue supporting the campaign and and the and he movement. made sure to meet with our civil rights leaders mm-hmm. who were around. So yep. so in Atlanta, it was with the King family. Here in Detroit is with Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse Jackson was falling around all over the place. Yeah, Jesse's around. Yeah, Jesse was around everywhere. Uh, the one thing I I, I not listed was Chicago. Uh-huh. He did not go to Chicago which was interesting, a heavy African-American population, mm-hmm. uh, heavy labor. But I believe since Daly was still mayor. Yep. Is that true? Or is that that's, kind of like a That's thing? what I have read. Okay. Um, yeah, that uh, he, that a lot of the people involved in planning the trip did not want to have Mandela have to shake hands and get his picture taken with Daly, that it was, there was a lot of conflict there. Not to get off on that tangent. Yeah. Um, so what kind of collections did you look at um, and what kind of collections do you think uh, researchers would find of interest of all the things you just talked about from communist influence to talking with unions to how the unions were mm. um, involved? What yeah. do you think would be the best ones? We we have a, a pretty good number of, of interesting stuff here. I think people think about what's at the Ruther and they wouldn't think there is that much having to do with any part of Africa. But realistically, there is because labor movement is involved in a couple different ways. The AFSCME Secretary Treasurer Bill Lucy records um, was a big one because I mentioned that Bill Lucy was a founding member of a lot of these organizations that are um, really pushing for anti-apartheid, for financial divestment. Um, he was a big player in all of that. There's also some um, really good stuff in the Jerry McEntee presidential collection at AFSCME. So if you're looking it up, it would be the AFSCME Office of the President, Gerald McEntee Records. So that's stuff that is kind of coming from the official AFSCME President's Office. So a lot of the stuff relates to the union's official support, the union's official support for these various organizations. So... Trans-Africa, et cetera. But also Jerry McIntyre is, is with Bill Lucy at a lot of these kind of protests. You know, we've got some really interesting images of them both kind of wearing sandwich board signs and protesting at the Capitol and all those types of things. So they supported it from a headquarters perspective, but they also sent the leadership out to to physically be there and get their picture taken and, and you know, support it with their feet. But we also have, I mentioned the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists where the repository for their records. So a lot of their kind of earlier stuff where they talk about as an organization, what are they going to do, what partnerships they're making and, and what are their kind of first causes. Um, and having chosen the anti-apartheid movement as part of that, that stuff we've got here as well. And then the UAW is one that I think sometimes people forget about, but there's a lot of stuff related to the anti-apartheid movement in the... UAW Office of the President Owen Bieber record. So he was the president during that 80s time when Mandela was coming to town. And there were pictures of him, you know, on stage with Mandela and Stevie Wonder and some other leaders from the UAW, you know, kind of celebrating. But it's also really interesting to see not only related to this visit, like that collection has, you know, like planning documents, a schedule of what he was going to do while he was in town, things like that. But it also has stuff related to other leaders of the anti-apartheid movement. So Nelson Mandela, while he became kind of the face of it, wasn't the only guy. There are other people who are active in South Africa who are going, they're getting arrested, they're going through trials. So as those things are happening in the 80s, you know, the UAW is collecting documents about those trials, about how UAW members can support, whether through protests or raising money or whatever it may be. Um, So those things are in there as well. 
Um, AFT collection also oh, has yeah. materials because they were sending dignitaries mm. even in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we have an oral history with a guy describing going to South Africa in 1979. And one day the group, it was an AFL-CIO contingency. Mm-hmm. And one day they were white. And the other day the newspaper said they were colored. The next Whoa. day the, they were back to be white again because where they were traveling. But at the same time, they were meeting with the underground unions. Yeah. They would sneak in to various areas. I mean, the government knew what they were doing, mm-hmm. but uh, they didn't know how much cash they were carrying. Oh. Um, wow. And but also we have the ballot from the first free elections. In have the, you ever seen it? I did want to mention that, you know, obviously the connection between the labor movement in the U.S. and South Africa and Nelson Mandela didn't end in 1990. It's It's really important to note that they had so much faith in the American labor movement's, you know, desire to have a free and fair election that in the 1994 election, the AFL-CIO sent a delegation to observe the the elections and and be kind of making sure that things were fair, that people were able to vote. There were no, you know, people trying to stop voting from happening. And that's cool that we have one of the ballots that is – is that in an AFT collection? Mm-hmm. Yes, in the Schenker collection. In the Schenker, okay. And then I I did want to say that Bill Lucy, again, he led the AFL-CIO delegation to to go and observe the election. So he's really cool and a major player in this whole process. Yeah, our collection's covered all the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really focus on AFSCME, but I also don't want to downplay the influence that the UAW had in in all this work. The UAW specifically, they kind of ran the visit out of the Fair Practices Department, which in the U.S. focused on things like civil rights, things like fairness at work, et cetera. And so I think it's really interesting that they connected those things on their own and they kind of ran the visit out of that department. A lot of labor organizations in the U.S. are are really deeply involved in the anti-apartheid movement, but AFSCME and UAW played a pretty big role in part because of some of the people in those organizations. So Bill Lucy, for example, but others as well, who are really, really interested in in personally supporting those protests, hunger strikes, uh, divestment with pension funds, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we do have the collection of Mark Step, right? We do. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, some of the pictures um, from the the rally at Tiger Stadium have an ecstatic Mark Step in the side of them. <laughs> so so you know that he was involved. But So a lot of those people you see right around Nelson Mandela at the time are people who, you know, he wanted to have around him. They're, they're people that he wanted to meet. He had known in... Uh, during his time in prison, too, some of these people in the late 80s are going to visit South Africa and observe conditions and reporting back. And Mark Sepp um, was one of those guys who, as an African-American leader in the labor movement, is is really personally connected to making sure that his union is supporting the anti-apartheid movement. Because it's they are tightly connected, these ideas that if you believe that black Americans should have rights, then why shouldn't people everywhere have rights and so that it's 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 a connection to him it's the same brotherhood both in labor um and amongst african americans and it's it's something that carries through whether it's marks up at the uaw or belusi at the at AFSCME or various other unions where black activists in the u.s are really pushing the anti-apartheid movement internationally we didn't talk about specials wore... aka song come on we need to talk about that because i don't really know that much about that honestly if you're willing to say like what the song? Yeah. The song? Yeah. What about the song? Special Zanker? Tell us about it. Free Nelson Mandela. Special AK. Mm-hmm. And no, you're not putting this at the end. <laughs> 
She knows to leave that mic on now. <laughs> that was it. Was it was a um, one of the singers or leaders of the specials, and they were called the specials, aka. Uh, went to an anti-apartheid uh, rally in England in 82, 83, mm-hmm. and came up with the idea for this song, and that song hit number one, nine, and they sing it, uh, they were singing it all over South Africa, they were wow. singing it all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a really good example of, of how, like, Nelson Mandela became the face of this movement, Yeah, and it's a totally international. It's not as though just the American labor movement is involved in these protests, it's, it's you know, students everywhere. Students, it's, we had the Shandy Towns Europe. up. Um, that was a huge divestment for University of Michigan to pull out. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing it all over the place. Uh, I swear, yeah, it was it was a constant weekly thing of people in front of the South African embassy being arrested. Mm-hmm. You would get arrested. You go into the paddy wagon. Hey, Bill. Hey, John. How you doing? All right, arrested. Five bucks. Okay, get out of here. Yeah. Go right around. Get arrested again. <laughs> <laughs> it was a constant flow. It sounds very efficient. It was efficient. <laughs> you had to be because you had hundreds of people there. Mm, yeah. Uh, labor leaders, political leaders, and students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, getting arrested is sort of a tried and true part of the protest process. That's why, you know, when people today see, you know, somebody blocking a street or whatever, and they say, well, why can't people just protest in a way that doesn't bother me in the slightest? That is the point. You know, I mean, the point of protest is that, you know, you're going to cause enough of a kerfuffle that somebody has to change something. Kerfuffle. That is the word of the day. (laughs) Which is, you know, I I think that's a really interesting connection between, you know, Nelson Mandela and the ANC's understanding of how to create change and what the UAW was doing. I mean, it made sense. They made sense to each other in a lot of ways because, you know, the UAW gets started And in their early days, in the 30s, they're doing things like a sit-down strike where the goal is to stop the machinery, to stop the the production of goods for sale because they know that, like, hitting them in the pocketbook is the way to make them make a different decision. And so Nelson Mandela knew this, too. In his early days, they're doing things like making it impossible to run the trains. But then later on, the, the same theme carries through with ideas like divestment. He knows that under capitalism, if you are stopping people from making a profit, they'll choose a different path. Otherwise, mm, probably not. You you can't make change without creating a kerfuffle, if you will, making a stink, that if you don't cause a little trouble, no one's going to pay attention. And that's it. Yeah, that was a good way to end. I like that. That okay. was awesome. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Nearing. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. So, you know what planes he was dry, uh, flying, flying in? What kind of planes? You know what they were? They were Trump planes. <sighs> Trump.
Trump sponsored all his plans throughout the United States. Huh. Well. Nice sidebar. Okay, let's go. I, I wouldn't call it nice. Uh, <laughs> times have changed, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that. I. Um, See, it was a nice sidebar. Mm.